what my mom says is that she she will basically enter a store with her Malbec, her Chardonnay, and people would say, well, I can't buy that. It's from Argentina. It's too expensive. It's $20. You know, we're talking about the early 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, $20 was a lot of money. It would be like today saying $150, $200. And so she would say, okay, what's your best red wine here? And they'd say, oh, that one. And she'd say, okay, here's my credit card. I'll buy it. And she would always bring her little brown bags and she would blind taste them. And she claims that our wine always won. But that is literally how we change minds, one bottle at a time. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz Kasky. As a travel curator, cook, wine aficionado, and design lover here in South America, I've always been fascinated by the stories of how creatives pursue their dreams. What's the energy behind a great chef and restaurant? How is that tasty cheese made? Why does this wine speak to me? What was the inspiration for that hotel? Or simply appreciating the artistry of an old world weaving with contemporary design. I'm constantly searching for local flavors and am passionate about sharing them. Welcome to In Search of Flavor, a podcast that explores the experiences, ideas, and stories behind the fascinating trailblazers in the region and the beautiful projects they've birthed. So pour yourself a glass of wine, dial into your wanderlust, and get ready to be inspired. Today's guest, Laura Catena, is a fourth-generation Argentine vintner, physician, and author. Catena's great-grandfather founded the Catena Winery in Mendoza in 1902 after immigrating from Italy. Her father, Nicolas Catena Zapata, often referred to as the, air quotes, Robert Mondavi of Argentina, helped facilitate the ascent of Argentine Malbec onto the world stage. Laura was born in Mendoza, Argentina, and graduated from Harvard, and then went on to get her medical degree from Stanford before she started feeling the pull to get into her family business. She took her love of research and science and passion for her family's winery and came on board. She currently is the managing director of Catena Zapata and also her own winery called Luca Wines in Mendoza. And she founded the Catena Institute for Wine, which is a research-driven center, which we will talk about further in the interview. She travels and lectures about Argentine wines and viticulture, is one of Argentina's biggest advocates, and has also authored books like Vino Argentina, which is an unofficial guide to Argentina and its wine, and Gold in the Vineyard. She also finds time to still practice emergency medicine as a physician in San Francisco and as a wife and mom. Her boundless energy, enthusiasm, inspiring story, and love for what she does will just pull you into this episode and uplift you. So let's go. Hi, Laura. It's so great to see you. Thank you for joining the In Search of Flavor podcast. You are joining us from San Francisco. Yes, and I'm in San Francisco. Thank you, Liz. Great. And, you know, you need little introduction to your family in the world of wine in Argentina. Catena Zapata, I feel at this juncture is is a household name really in many ways for most of us. So it's an honor to really, I want to dive in to not only this wonderful journey of, of building this legacy, but also, you know, personally, you are such a multi-hyphenate that I find so inspiring as a woman entrepreneur too. So let's dive in with this interesting um, quote that I, I loved because you're a physician and a winemaker and an author. And you have said, I thought I was going to get, I thought I was going to spend my life working as a doctor and drinking my family's wines, not making them. So obviously you've had a very interesting 
career trajectory, but this this is in your blood. So let's go back to Mendoza, where this all started many, many years ago. Can you t- can you share a little bit about, about your family life in Mendoza and how that was growing up in this in this wine world? Yeah, so I really grew up in a, a traditional wine family. My uh, father is the third generation. His grandfather immigrated from Italy to Mendoza. He loved Mendoza, my great-grandfather. He actually ended up bringing his parents from Italy to Argentina, uh, and, and they died in Argentina. He loved Argentina. He, he used to have a piece of steak every morning for breakfast to thank the Lord for his luck in coming to this land of plenty, because you know Argentina is this beautiful place. Well, you know Argentina. There, there's so many trees and 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 just nature, and it's everything's so open and beautiful. Um, and um, I grew up in the countryside, going to the winery with my grandfather. I was very close to my grandfather and my older brother, and uh, you know we would go to the winery with him. Uh, my brother would go around with him as like you know the the heir apparent, and I would play with the dogs. Uh, but my, my grandfather paid attention to both of us. But but then my father, you know, he is is obsessed with education. And his mother was the headmistress of the local school. And as a woman, she really believed that men and women were equal. And so I was really brought up as, you know, somebody for whom the sky was the limit. And when my father left Argentina for a few years during the military dictatorship. There were all these kidnappings. It was really dangerous. My uncle was kidnapped in Argentina. My father had to negotiate his release. And so he said, let's go to California to, to visit our, our friends there. And he applied for a position as a visiting scholar to UC Berkeley. So I end up in California at age 14. I came from the military government. I went to a public school, this like very prestigious top public school where I wasn't allowed to talk unless I was told I could talk. I couldn't wear bangs. I couldn't wear earrings. Like super strict. It was ran military style to Berkeley. So, you know, I get to Berkeley. Then I went to Harvard undergrad. I studied biology and I said, I want to do something to help people. And so I thought, I like science. I like people. I'm going to study medicine. And actually, the interesting thing is when I told my father, he was rather disappointed. And I was not used to my father being disappointed with me because I think he actually thought that Somehow I was going to go work in the winery with him, but he also never pushed me to do anything uh, because that's the family rule is you don't push your kids to do anything. You let them go and they will come back. If mm-hmm. if, if the, the family thing is the right thing for them, they will come back on their own. So I go become a doctor and then my father is, is basically revolutionizing Argentine wine in the, in the 1990s. He, he, he goes to California, as I said, and that was in the early 80s. And he sees that this crazy Mr. Michael Mondavi, this, sorry, Robert, Michael's the son. Robert Mondavi uh, says he's making wines in California that can compete with the best French wines. He hears, my father hears about the judgment of Paris and he says, I'm mm-hmm. going to go do this in Argentina. And he comes back in the, in the 80s, early 80s, and he starts, you know, bringing in all the French oak barrels, all the technology. And at first he thinks what you need is technology. And then I go on these trips to France with him. So I studied French in school. So I, I'm fluent in French. So my father would say, Laurita, come with me as my translator. We go to France and the French people, all they talk about is terroir, you know, mm. the taste of place, the climate. And my father realizes that he needs to go to higher altitudes where it'll be a little cooler to make these, you know, fresher wines with, with nice tannins and nice minerality. And so as my father's doing all this, I'm going to med school. I specialize in emergency medicine. And then at some point, I decide to come and help him help our country. And, and I've been dividing, you know, between medicine and wine ever since, 
we're talking about the 90s. Wow. And so you, you, that's, that was your connection then to California and uh, you've been here ever since. Uh, well, so I actually, you know, I did go to uh, the East Coast when I went to Harvard for undergrad. Then uh, I went to Stanford for medical school. And then my residency was in Los Angeles. And then <laughs> I married an American who was also an emergency physician. And we moved to San Francisco, which I thought would be interesting because it's, you know, the heart of California. Mm. I'm very involved at UC Davis. Uh, I'm actually on the board of the School of Enology and Viticulture. I, I know a lot of people in California. I, I actually am a part owner of a California winery as well. And um, this connection between California and Argentina has always been strong. And I basically have been going back and forth for the last 25 years and spending, you know, at least three to four months a year in Argentina, even with my children going to school, both places, my husband complains all the time. You know, he says I'm the worst wife ever, but he hasn't divorced me because <laughs> I think at least I'm not boring. That's what I tell him. You know, you, you, you married a woman in an Argentine wine family, you know, you're stuck now. So when your father was building Catena Zapata, I think this is interesting for people that maybe don't know Argentine wine that deeply, or they've just been introduced to it. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, in this period when you guys were in California with the Mondavis and you saw how the world was opening to new world wine, essentially, what was the light bulb that went off then? Because terroir is is a scientific thing, but it's also cultural driven by the decisions that you make on the ground, right? So how did you kind of merge the two and then grow this, you know, because Argentina was at a very different place in the 80s in winemaking than it is now. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, Argentina has been making wine since the 16th century. So we have all these winemaking traditions, but my father had grown up with the sort of old Italian winemaking style. You would make the wine in these gigantic barriques. It would get oxidized. All the wine Mm. tasted the same. So, you know, there was terroir. Like my grandfather used to always say, you always buy your grapes, you know, in La Consulta. This is the southern part of the Uca Valley. That's mm-hmm. the darkest, the richest, and you can fix any bad blend with that. So there were all these, you know, traditional pieces of knowledge, irrigation, like all these ways to get better quality, but they weren't really scientifically based um, because, um, you know, most of the wine consumption was, was in Argentina. Wine mm-hmm. wasn't exported. We didn't have to compete with the best of the world. And, you know, when my father comes to California, you know, he sees, wow, there's this revolution and the new world can challenge the old world. He had actually been told by his grandfather, you know, the founder of the winery, you know, yeah, you might be able to make wines as good as the Italians, but don't ever challenge the French because they have this thing called terroir that nobody else has. And Mm -hmm. so even my Italian great-grandfather had bought into this thing that France owns terroir, which is the taste of place and, you know, the climats of Burgundy, you know, this, the Grand Cruz, like this is something that France owns, don't mess with it, don't even try. And my dad's also an economist, he has a PhD in economics, he studied at Columbia University in New York. And I think that in the end, it was actually looking at it as a businessman that helped him see the future. Because, you know, as a child, he'd worked in the vineyard since the age of five, he knew everything about viticulture, winemaking, you know, winemaking was, you know, for him, like speaking Spanish, you know, he, mm. he knew it from the core of his body. He, he had been brought up to work in the winery. But then he studied economics. And I think he asked himself, 
well, why can't we challenge the French? You know, we have soils that are ancient, um, you know, and, and, and back then he didn't know as much as we know now, but he said, we can buy the technology. We can buy the stainless steel tanks. Why can't we also think of making these great wines? And I think a lot of people, you know, around the world are now thinking this. There's, there's, there's wine being made in Bolivia, Mexico, in Asia, in China. In China, they're, they're making wine. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, actually, they make a lot of wine, but the, the high quality Chinese wine is a very new thing. Um, and I think that what I brought to the picture was that I had also spent a lot of time in France, strangely, but not for wine. I was obsessed with French literature. So I had actually taken a lot of, I, I almost minored in French in college. I'd taken uh, classes on, you know, Camus and Sartre. I was obsessed. So then when I went to France with my father, I, I also understood the culture. I'd spent time there as a child. Actually, I did an exchange program when I was 16 for several months. And so, um, you know, what I told my dad when I started working with him was, listen, yes, there is a science part of this. There's a technology part. But there's all these traditions that are what make French wine so great. It's the fact that the Cistercian monks, you know, uh, whatever, a thousand years ago, tested the wines from all these little parcels and found them to be different. We have this tradition that dates back to the 16th century. But we now need to make our own, you know, new tradition, which is a mix of, you know, what has happened in the rest of the world? What can we learn? And what is it that we already know? And so that's why I established the Catena Institute of Wine in 1995, which was to study high altitude viticulture, to make Argentine wines that could stand with the best of the world. And what I found was that, you know, there was a lot of research that we needed to do, but that also we'd gotten lucky because you cannot make great wine in any other, in any part of the world. So no. I study the a lot of the new winemaking regions, you know, they don't have the right climate. They have monsoons. They have the wrong soil. They don't have water. It's too cold and they have to bury the vines. If you bury the vines, you lose 30% every year because they die. So what we have in Mendoza is this kind of heaven for winemaking. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what my great-grandfather thought of heaven for, in, for the cows, for the meat, <laughs> we also have it for wine because we have alluvial soils with stones, really good drainage. We have a lot of limestone in our soils. That's something that nobody knew 20 years ago. That's right. part of the research that we've done. And limestone, you know, nobody knows exactly why. It's, maybe it's related to the pH, maybe to the microbes. But, you know, often in limestone soils, you, you make better wine. And we also have this cool climate at altitude where you get sunlight and cool climate. So you have really beautiful natural acidity and slow ripening, lots of concentration. So, you know, Mendoza, the Uca Valley particularly, is, in my opinion, one of the great winemaking regions of the world. And... And that's been my job is not only to make these wines, but then to show to the world how great these wines are. Yes. And that's one, one, what's interesting is, you know, when this was opening, you know, that your father was paving the way, Malbec was relatively unknown too. So why do you, Malbec was something that it, did you see just had a better expression, generally speaking, within all the varietals yeah. In Mendoza, so, that it just was like, oh, my God, this is like clearly our strong suit. Well, no, it, it wasn't an automatic thing. Uh, no? Nope. Malbec was our strong suit. So the, the interesting thing is that nobody really knows why Malbec became more widely planted than, let's say, even Cabernet Sauvignon, which mm -hmm. we have quite a bit of Cabernet Sauvignon, but we have yeah. a lot more Malbec. So what we do know is that Malbec comes to Argentina in the middle of the 19th century when it was much more important in Bordeaux. So Malbec dates back 2,000 years. It was drank at the wedding of Eleanor of Aquitaine in the 12th century. 
it was super famous in 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 you know the, the, in Caos, the region where Malbec was born. In um, the 18th and 19th century, there was more Malbec planted in the Medoc, where the Grand Cruz, the Bordeaux Grand Cruz, come from, than Cabernet Sauvignon. So Malbec was considered like the most important part of the blend for the Grand Cruz with Cabernet. In fact, I read many French, old French texts um, that say, don't ever bottle a Cabernet Sauvignon alone. You always need to add the Malbec for the fruit and the smooth tannins. So Cabernet has the pyrazines, you know, that herbal notes and very tannic. And Malbec has very rich flavor, but it's much smoother and it has more fruit aromatics. Mm -hmm. So this blend was magic. Now, Malbec is very susceptible to cold weather and to changes in weather. The yields go way down. And they had that problem in Bordeaux. And also there were there was what was called the Little Ice Age. So there were several decades of very cool climate. And so after Phylloxera, Malbec was not replanted and it comes to Argentina. Now, in Argentina, it becomes the most important variety. But in the 1970s, it was being pulled out. Oh, really? Because there was this, yeah, it, it went from like 50,000 hectares. Like t today, we have about 50,000 hectares. There were 50,000 hectares in the 60s and 70s, and it went down to like 12,000 hectares. So, you know, three fourths of the Malbec was pu pulled out. And the reason is that Malbec is not very productive. It's low yielding. It's a high quality grape. It's not for tons of cheap wine. And people wanted to make tons of cheap wine because Argentina's economy was in shambles. You know, we had like these populist governments that we still have, but at least <laughs> now there's, there's, a, there's a little more of a balance. A little more balance you know, than before. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, we, we had like, you know, what was pretty close to like the leftist of the leftist. So there was like no support for business whatsoever back then. Now there is. Um, and anyhow, so they're pulling out all the Malbec and, um, and then my father comes in and says, I'm going to make great wine in Argentina. It's going to, I, I want to do blind tastings with the best wines of the world. And this was very different than what Chile was doing. So what Chile was doing in the eighties was lots of cheap wine. Mm -hmm. They were, they, they, that was the target and they were doing great at it. My dad said, no, I'm going to make uh, fine wine, like Mr. Mondavi, you know, he was one of my dad's great heroes. And he also was a really good friends with the Antinoris, with the Gaias. And, you know, Italy was not that famous back then. You know, yes, even, the people Italian, forget. <laughs> right, even, even Australia, you know, nobody knew what Penfolds was, you know, until really the nineties, uh, you know, so, so basically my dad says, I'm going to go for the finest wines. And so he starts doing all this research in, in the eighties. Um, he actually doesn't make wine for export for 10 years while he's studying and figuring out what to do. And then he actually comes out with Cabernet and Chardonnay. And it's actually an Italian man who is the inspiration for Malbec. And not many people know this story. So it's, it's um, Attilio Pagli, who used to work with Antinori. And my dad, we had some Sangiovese planted. And, and um, Attilio comes and, you know, everybody that came to Argentina would go and meet my, my father. It was like meeting the grand, the god, sorry, the godfather, except my dad has never killed anybody. But, you know, <laughs> you, had, you had to go meet Nicolas Catena. And so Atilio was making some wine there with some Italian buddies. And my dad says, here, why don't you, you know, you make your wine at our winery, but teach us some things. And, and he hired him to do a project. And he said, listen, I want, you to find, I want you to tell me to make wine from all the different varieties we have. And I, I want you to tell me the greatest one. And he said, and you know what? I have some really nice Sangiovese that I, I want to see if we can make great Sangiovese in Mendoza. We actually had quite a bit of Sangiovese planted. And Atilio comes back. And he says, well, you know, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news first? And so my, my 
father always says the bad news first. That's in, in my family, you always say the bad news first. So, so I think it says, well, uh, basically, your Sangiovese is crap. It's so bad. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's the clones, the plants, or the climate, but it's terrible. And my dad said, okay, so give me the good news. And he said, ah, the Malbec. I think the Malbec you have is one of the great varieties of the world. I think it's as good as your Cabernet. It's as good as your Chardonnay. It's as good as the Italian Sangiovese from Tuscany. I mean, this is a guy that was a winemaker at Antinori. Like, this guy knows fine wine. And so, and and really, my father, my, my grandfather was a big fan of Malbec. He used to always say to my dad, you know what? Uh... The, the French have nothing on us. Our, our Argentine Malbec is just as good as their best wines. But my dad was always thinking, ah, his father was, you know, being a little too enthusiastic. And so with, with Alberto Antonini, my father says, okay, fine. I'm going to work on this. And what we found was so amazing because we had these massal selections of Malbec, so very diverse selections of Malbec that have been lost in Europe because they didn't replant it. Mm. And we have them in Argentina. So what we have with Malbec is not only this ancient variety that was uber famous many times in history because it's so good, because it tastes good. It's a rich, flavorful, smooth tannins. It ages well. Um, but also, uh, you know, we have this, this special place to grow it, this high altitude place. Um, and we have the genetic diversity that has been lost. And we also have that for Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's something that m- many people don't know is that most of the vines in Argentina are ungrafted. In that way, Chile is quite similar. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to mention that because w- that's one of the other things that really dif- differentiates viticulture in Argentina is that you the, there is very little grafting and and you have these natural barriers that are well defined. So when you when once Malbec became very apparent that there was something there, like and it, and, yeah. it, and it was like magical. What was the principle of how to get that to the world. And what I say that, like, I mean, so much of terroir is minimalist intervention, right? And expressing what you have. It sounds like that was always the, the philosophy, but I mean, expressing that in a new grape that's, you know, in a new market is relatively uncharted territory. So how did you guys first start figuring well, out this path? Well, because it, now there's so many. It wasn't, it wasn't at all easy because you know, I remember when I was still in residency and I would, you know, take my one day off a month to go with the wine salesperson to bring around our Malbec, which was delicious. And people would taste it. They said it tasted great. But finally, some guy said, you know, Laura, it's fantastic, but no one will buy Malbec. So I can't buy it from you because I won't be able to sell it. And I I was so appreciative of, of the honesty of this person. You know, but people today have a hard time imagining that, that, mm-hmm. that someday somebody said that. Uh, so th- there was a lot of persistence. But really, the principle for my father and I was all about quality. And, and I'll tell you one thing that my father taught me very early on, because I came from medicine, I knew science, so I understood research. I understood winemaking, you know, because it's very, uh, you know, for a scientist, it's very simple. It's like a lot simpler than understanding human disease, fermentation, you know, it's a simple reaction. Uh, but what I didn't know was this um, concept of marketing. And I remember going to my dad and saying, dad, you know, I'm sorry to ask you such a basic question, but what is marketing? And so my dad says, Laurita, don't worry about marketing. Uh, He said, "Um, I'm going to teach you one thing about marketing. He said, if you can make a wine um, that is much better than all the competitors, you don't need any marketing. And he said, my philosophy is that my wines need to be twice as good as the competitors. 
So we actually had a system where we would blind taste our wine with wines twice their price. Like we would put in some Australian Shiraz and we put in some California wines, we put some French wines and we would blind taste and say, is our wine of the quality of the wines twice their price? So if we're going to sell it for $20, it's going to be as good as the $40 to $50 wines. If we're going to sell it for $50, it's going to be like the $100 wines. And we still do this to this day. Every year we do these tastings where we want to be sure that we are over delivering in quality and concentration and richness of the wine. And I have to say that that was how we won the first battle because um, we would go in, uh, my mom actually famously, because my dad's very shy. So the thought that he was going to travel the world with his wine was terrifying. In fact, I said, you know, Papa, you should be like Antinori, who was basically traveling the world, and Angelo Gaia, you know, who was, you know, every week he'd be in a different city. And my dad was, oh my God, Laurita, you know, he, my dad's like a nerd, you know, he's, he's, he's a PhD. He likes to study and read his books and be in the vineyard. But then he had this brilliant idea. He was going to ask my mom, who actually was running her own software company. But my dad said, you know, Elena, Elenita, you know, you have to help me because I can't do this. And my mom, off she went. And what my mom says is that she, she will basically enter a store with her Malbec, her Chardonnay, and people would say, well, I can't buy that. It's from Argentina. It's too expensive. It's $20. You know, we're talking about the early 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, $20 was a lot of money. It would be like today saying $150, $200. And so she would say, okay, what's your best red wine here? And they'd say, well, that one. And she'd say, okay, here's my credit card. I'll buy it. And she would always bring her little brown bags, and she would blind taste them. And she claims that our wine always won. But that is literally how we change minds, one bottle at a time. And we won all these blind tastings. In fact, in 1999, the Wall Street Journal had a whole page on Malbec. It was the first major, major newspaper about Malbec. And we were the number one, which they had chosen blind. And that was big, you know, because most people reading the Wall Street Journal had probably never heard of Malbec. So it was a lot of work, but it was really based on convincing people that it was a great wine, that it had a great flavor. Um, And the more recent history of talking about Malbec for me has been reminding people of this ancient history of these selections Mm. of vines that we have in Argentina. And we have this new label that I don't know if you've heard of called Malbec Argentino. Have you heard of Mm -hmm. the the label? Um, I know that we're on recording, but I'm I'm showing it to you here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's basically the story of Malbec through four women Eleanor Vacuitain, uh, the Italian immigrant to Ar- Argentina, then Madame Philoxera, which is, you know, the insect that decimated the, the European vineyards. And that's why Malbec came to Argentina. Uh, and, and she's female because the insect mostly uh, exists in the female form. And then uh, there's my sister. And it's we've won so many awards for this label. And the wine comes from old vines. So it's this really beautiful wine. So I think a lot of it had to do with first proving the quality for Malbec and then talking about the history of Malbec and, um, you know, finding opportunities for people to taste the wine. I think when people taste Malbec, they love it and they they will buy it again. Uh, what I'm working on right now, though, is the higher end because, you know, people are very comfortable with a $20 Malbec. But we can make Malbecs, you know, that are age-worthy, you know, that are from single little parcels, one hectare, like the Adriana single parcel wines that have, you know, received 100 points. We have six 100-point wines from the Adriana Vineyard at 5,000 feet elevation. And I think those wines are really worth tasting. And, and that's what I'm working on right now. I, my, my goal, uh, my 100-year goal, so I, I won't get to finish it, is uh, you know a, a bottle of Argentine wine in every collector's cellar. Oh, really? I have, that's great. Yeah. I think that's definitely 
doable. I, I hope so. <laughs> Maybe in my lifetime. Hopefully in my lifetime. <laughs> well, I will try to help you as much as possible. We believe in it too. <laughs> Questions about like, so this is getting a little technical. Guys listening, bear with us. But I'm interested to know. You talked about the massal selection of Malbec in Argentina. That was, you know, clonal material that's been completely eliminated from elsewhere in the world. Have you, through the Catena Institute of Wine, been able to actually identify different clones, uh, all the different clones for the Malbec? How are you working in developing, like you said, this single origin, not only of places, but also like knowing what to plant where becomes so important because obviously what you're going to plant in Adriana, maybe a certain clone is going to go much better there than if you're in Salta, for example. Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, the history of farming uh, and agriculture is, is pretty scary when you think about it. What, you know, the reduction of diversity that's happened and, you know, as a scientist, uh, I feel like for some things you do need higher yields. So for food, you know, uh, I think that, you know, people should be able to farm some, you know, selected plant. And, and this is not genetically modified because you can also do selection by just going in the field and picking the, you know, the, the tomato plant or the apple tree that gives you, you know, the nicest fruit uh, and the higher yields. So there has been in all of agriculture a selection of very high-yielding uh, disease resistance. You can also do some crossing between different varieties to get disease resistance. Uh, and, you know, that's not genetically modified is when you actually insert genetic material. That most of, agri- you know, most of the things you eat are not genetically modified. Um, now, in viticulture, is a little different because we have all these thousands of varieties, and they do all exist. But their genetic diversity has been significantly reduced because you used to actually plant the vineyard by taking cuttings from one vineyard and you would just go look at the vines and you'd find one that you liked that tasted good and it looked like it was in good shape. It didn't have any diseases. Boom. You take the cutting, you're going to replant that one. And that's how, and, and actually most of our vineyards are still planted that way. We're now going to, we have our own vine nursery because we have to look at vineyard diseases and viruses and all these things. But in the old until recently in Argentina, that's how you planted a vineyard. You went to your neighbor and you took these cuttings. Now, in the rest of the world, a lot of the, the selections have been reduced um, because they're grafting onto American rootstocks. So they usually, you know, they'll make clonal plantings where they have one clone or fewer clones. Now, there are parts in the world, like in Burgundy, they're actually trying to bring back some of their older selections. In Argentina, we never went to a reduction because we were isolated from the rest of the world. After Phylloxera, and because of the economy and everything was such a mess, we didn't get a lot of material coming from outside. So the genetic diversity we have for Malbec, for Cabernet Sauvignon, even for Chardonnay, for many varieties in Argentina, is greater than in many parts of the world that have been farmed sort of more industrially. Even France, you know has less genetic diversity than Argentina. Um, for, not for everybody, but, but for a variety for like Malbec, I, I doubt that any other country has as much diversity. Um, and so these diverse populations are, are good and bad. The, the bad part is that you might have a, a plant that produces 10 times more than another one in the same vineyard. And most viticulturists don't like that because they want ripening to happen at the same time. But actually, when you ask you know, the really knowledgeable people, they'll say that they like diversity because a little less ripe and a little more ripe when they come together, they make a more interesting wine. So I think there's actually a a change in the world wanting these diverse, you could call it 
clonal selection. The reason we call them masal is because they haven't been as well studied as a clonal. Like a clone, you know, everybody knows that vine is like that. It has this characteristic. When you do a masal Mm -hmm. selection, you kind of go, you make a selection and you replant it. And sometimes you'll have a double of one plant. Like it's less scientific. Uh, but we also have clonal selections that we've made. But, I think it's uh, interesting, though, because there's a lot more, you know, in some of our other conversations on this podcast, we've gotten into that this whole area in Argentina is opening in the next generation of winemakers that people are looking not only for different origins, but different clonal material to express yeah. those origins. So then it begs the question. I mean, for example, you mentioned your Adriana vineyard, which has a, yeah. an extremely u- unique terroir yeah. um, and is renowned for that. So yeah. maybe we can talk about like how, what, you know, what kind of decisions went into yeah. when you planted it and what are you looking for? The sh- that Chardonnay is arguably the best example of Argentine Chardonnay. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, I'll tell you when you ask my father, you know, if you'd ask him, 40 years ago, uh, the, the is it hard work or luck question, he probably would have answered hard work. And if you ask him now, he says it's 80% luck. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, honestly, the reason I think that most of the great wines in the world are made by multi-generational families, uh, it has to do with the trial and error. It's, mm. we, it's really hard to find these unique, one-of-a-kind, you know, I call them Grand Cru sites borrowing from the French word, which we don't use on the label, but we use the concept, mm-hmm. you know, because you, we planted so many, you know, hundreds of acres. And really, Adriana was my father looking for cooler climate, but he didn't realize that it had such a special soil until we started studying it. Mm-hmm. So that's where the luck came in. He mostly, you know, wanted to find the, the limit of vine cultivation in the cold. And then he also got this incredible soil. And I think if you talk to most farmers out there, they will tell you that, you know, they'll buy a piece of land, maybe it's whatever, 10 hectares, so 20 acres, and there'll be the three acres that give you the best wine. And you don't really know that you could do all this studying in the in the world. And until you plant the vineyard, um, you know, you don't know it. In terms of the of the selections, we have the Masal selections planted. And we also have some clones, our own selection of clones that are only five. What we find is that on really hard years, like the years where the weather is a little crazy, the masa selection performs best. And on years that are traditional where there's no frost, there's no hail, it's like beautiful, then the clones often do better because the clones were selected for low yield, high quality. So it's interesting that, you know, both can be good. Um, Yeah. But, uh, and in terms of how did we find this place again, I think it was a lot of luck, but I think it does speak for this high altitude, which is you know, something that we only have in Argentina, such extreme high altitude. And it is kind of a gift for, for grapes because you, the sunlight is important for the photosynthesis and because the grapes, to protect their seeds, develop thicker skins. And it also gives you the cooler climate at high altitude. Uh, and you don't want too much heat for wines. If you have too much heat, the ripening happens too quickly and all you get is a bunch of alcohol. So um, I think that Adriana is special you know, because of this combination of high altitude and soil. And could you talk a little bit, I mean, for listeners that, you know, maybe don't know Argentine topography or geography, and obviously 
altitude is the determining factor in how you find freshness in wines. You, you know, Catena Zapata has a lot of different vineyards now. And so obviously there's altitude differences. Maybe you can walk people through just a little bit of, you know, 101 on understanding when you're getting a Malbec, you're going to have even within a very small geographic space, you're dealing with very different climates and different expressions. So, I mean, how have you approached that in educating people? Because Luján de Cuyo is extremely different from La La, La Consulta. Yeah, so I think wine is very interesting because it's grown in so many parts of the world. You know, now apparently in the U.S., there's wine being made in every single state. Every state, yeah. Yeah, so... um, what I'd like to start with is with the Winkler classification, which was developed at UC Davis. That is, it's a summation of degrees over 10 degrees Celsius for the six months before harvest. And it basically gives you an idea of how hot is the place. So you start from zone one, which is the coolest, and that would be Champagne and parts of Burgundy. Then you go to zone two, which is a little warmer, uh, which would be like uh, Tuscany, Bordeaux. Then you go to... Uh, Zone three, which is parts of the Rhone and Napa and some parts of Rioja. And then you go to zone four, which would be the southern Rhone. Um, also some parts of Spain and maybe like warmer parts of California. Um, so these zones allow you to decide what to plant. So you would never plant a Chardonnay in a zone four that's too warm. You might mm-hmm. plant a Syrah or a Shiraz. And then if you plant Cabernet in the zone one, which is where Champagne is made, it's going to be super green and hard to drink. Uh, actually, if you, if you drink the, the Cabernet Francs, you know, from northern Italy, that's what, you know, Cabernet type grape, you know, grown in, in climate. That's very cool. I love those wines, but a lot of people find them, you know, too astringent, too bitter. Um, so this is how um, viticultural regions get classified in terms of climate. In Mendoza, we have from zone one to zone four within a 45 minute drive because of the altitude. Because you go from the warmer and the lower altitude to the cooler. In in other parts of the world, you usually have to drive seven hours to go from mm, one to the other. Right. Or you can go to the coast. So in some parts of California, right. it, it's it's if you go from inland to the coast, you get to much cooler climate. But usually not as extreme as in Argentina in such a short distance. In France, you have to drive seven hours right. to go from you know zone four, the southern road to Champagne. So that's the first thing to understand about Argentina, that you have all these microclimates that are very different, very close to each other. Then the soils, you know, we have these alluvial soils, which means they were formed by melting glaciers and rivers. So it's these stones get dragged down. And so you get the heavier big stones in the top because, you know, it takes a lot of water to drag them and often they get stuck. And then you have the much lighter materials like the clays lower down. You see the same thing in France and California. And, you know, usually in the lower part of where a river or water passed, you get more clay, which is the lighter material and it gets dragged more easily. This has a tremendous impact because in a clay soil, you're going to have more nutrients, you're going to have more water. In a stony soil, you're going to have better drainage, lower yields. And, you know, a lot of soils are mixed, clay, uh, loam, and, and, and sand and rocks. Uh, but usually you have the dominant um, feature and that will determine the yields. It'll determine the, the quality. It'll deten- determine the, you know, the kind of vine you can plant. You know, so for example, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir have much uh, smaller root systems than Malbec, for example. So actually, if you plant Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir in a, in a very stony soil, they're going to die, or you have mm. to put them on a rootstock. So there are a lot of considerations to do with soil. Then we've got climate. 
Um, and then the plant selection is like you said, you know, you need to uh, find a selection that's right for that site. Uh, and for us, it's very different than in California or in Europe because we are mostly ungrafted. So when you're grafting on American rootstock, you're really thinking of the rootstock and the soil. Um, but, you know, there's there's so many elements that go into, into planting, but a lot of it has to do with this Winkler classification of, you know, planting the right variety for the right place. And, you know, if, if you make a Pinot Noir in a very, in, in Napa, mm, of course. you know, in the middle of Napa, it would be disgusting. It would just be like all <laughs> alcohol. You'd lose all the fruit. It'd be so sad. Well, and that's been, I mean, I think so much of, you know, I, that we've seen at least is there's so much education that has to go into these new areas for people that perhaps they don't know Mendoza that well. And I'm sure you, I mean, now that, you know, you are working a lot in your own personal project, Luca, which we can talk about a little bit. So people know is working with growers of these very unique plots of, you know, vineyards essentially, and, and different areas that, you know, you can start showcasing all of this diversity, something that even 10 years ago was not as common in an internet, you know, as an export international product of Argentine Malbec. So maybe we can segue here and talk about your project. I just want to clarify, you did ask that question about Malbec and regionality. And I do think that there's some varieties that really soak up the, the mm. taste of place like Pinot Noir. And we just came up with a study in scientific reports, which is a nature magazine that is the largest and longest study of any variety about terroir. And we showed that you could reliably distinguish Malbec from different regions and different parcels within Argentina. Super exciting study. It's in scientific reports. You can just Google Malbec terroir. Mm. Um, So to answer your question, I think Malbec, like Pinot Noir, really soaks up the place, maybe more than a variety like Cabernet Sauvignon, where more of the classic Cabernet characteristics uh, dominate. But, um, you know, to answer your question about Luca, what when I started uh, working on Luca, uh, there were all these beautiful old vine vineyards in Argentina, and many of them were being pulled out because they couldn't make any money because as a vineyard gets older, it yields less. And they were mostly selling their grapes in bulk. They couldn't get paid enough. And they were turning them actually into other things, growing other things. And um, I thought that this was a tragedy because, you know, over half the vineyards in Argentina are owned by small producers that own less than five hectares, which is very different from Chile. In Chile, you know, there's a couple of large wineries that own, you know, 80% of the vineyards. In Argentina, farming and viticulture is really a way of life. It's much more similar to Italy or even France Mm -hmm. and Spain, where there's a lot of small vineyard holders. But many of these small vineyard holders sell their grapes and don't make wines because, you know, it's not that easy to make wine. Then you have to sell it. You know, that that requires a whole other skill set. And I not only wanted to make great wine, but I didn't want this whole viticulture, um, you know, culture, all the, these little vineyards that families have had for generations. Um, you know, and, and it's not that different from from Burgundy in the sense that, you know, in Burgundy, the reason why you have all these little vineyards is because of the Napoleonic Code. And the inheritance It's not like in the U.S. that a parent can leave, you know, one thing to one kid, another thing to another kid. They can this disown concept. I remember hearing my a friend once say I was disowned. I said, what's that? You know, in Argentina, it's illegal. You cannot disown your kid. Like, seriously, you actually have to leave them <laughs> your stuff. So you, I guess you could spend all the money. Um, but so these vineyards get split up. And then they become these small vineyard holders. And I wanted that culture and all those vineyards to remain in family hands. And so I started working with these growers that had these beautiful old vineyards, and I would pay them by the hectare instead of by the ton. 
And that's how Luca was born. And the Luca old vine Malbec is, you know, so delicious. And it comes from all these old vine vineyards. And now there's a lot more appreciation for these old vineyards and they're not being pulled out. But there was a time where I had great fear that, you know, Argentina was going to lose these small growers, these old vines. And, and that's why, why Luca was born. And basically with Luca, I, I, I have the luxury that I can make things that I don't care if they're going to sell or not because it's very small production. So I have the old vine Malbec. I have a Syrah. I was told like, why are you making a Syrah from Argentina? I said, because it tastes good, you know, because they were saying, you know, you should make Syrah from the Rhone and from Australia. We actually make great Syrah in Argentina. Oh, of course. I totally yeah. associate, like in Salta, some of the nicest Salta Syrahs, amazing, Salta yeah. is amazing. Yeah, I know. But a lot of people think you should kind of stick to Malbec, you know, and, and of course Malbec is amazing, but there are other things. I make a Pinot Noir, a Chardonnay. So, yeah. Let's talk about that because I, I love the Chardonnay I've tasted in high altitude in, in Uco specifically. Yeah. And even good Sauvignon Blanc in La Carrera section of Mendoza. Oh, yeah. But I think Cabernet Franc is becoming mm. the next, uh, I'm thinking of the word in Spanish, sorry, bandera, like flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that really, I mean, so let's talk about how, I mean, you've championed Malbec so much, which was sort of like how you blaze trails, so to speak. But now it's like you're also protecting patrimonio, like cultural heritage and wine, and opening up this way to show that you can go both horizontal and Malbec and show that diversity. You can also show yeah. there's a, that Mendoza, it, it, Argentina is not a one note or one varietal yeah. country. So let's go there because yeah. I think that is where the future is, to be honest, and a well, lot of what's coming. I mean, I, I think you know, 50% of the, of the vines for fine wine are Malbec. And um, I do think we have still so much more to see of Malbec. You know, the high altitude, the parcelas, the different regions, what we already talked about. Patagonia is coming up too, yeah, right? Patagonia, exactly. Uh, but there are many other varieties. One of them is Bonarda, which is mm -hmm. actually Charbonneau de Savoie. So it's from Savoie, which is French, but it used to be Italian. So I consider it a sort of half Italian grape. Um, and, and my, my, um, my great grandfather, Nicola loved it because he thought it was 100% Italian. Uh, and that's a really fun variety. It's really refreshing. We've got the criollas, which are the, mm. you know, the native grapes that cross in Argentina from the mission, from the grapes brought by the missionaries that can make these really refreshing, uh, we're making natural wines like Atena with them. Um, and there's like, they give you this kind of pink you know, every, every year it's a little different, the color, and they're super refreshing, not very age worthy, but wonderful wines. And then there's Cabernet Franc, which uh, you love. And, you know, our winemaker, our head winemaker, Alejandro Gil has a really famous one called El Enemigo. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, I think that Cabernet Franc is very well suited for Mendoza. It's a little tougher than Cabernet Sauvignon in the sense that it does well in these really stony soils without a lot of water. It's, it, you know, Malbec, does well with low water situation and Cabernet Franc does too. Cabernet Sauvignon likes a little more water. So I definitely think that Cabernet Franc, it's, it's fruity, it's smooth. It's got a little bit of the pyrazine. It's got a great future in Argentina, but it will not replace Malbec for the simple reason that there's much less of it. So there's about a thousand hectares of Cabernet Franc. That's about 2000 acres. And there's 45,000 hectares of Malbec. So um, it's, it's still a, a wine that's in very high fashion in Argentina. You don't see it outside of Argentina that often. Uh, but I agree with you that if you find a bottle of Cabernet Franc from, you know, we have a Catena Appellations Cabernet Franc. Alejandro sells his El Enemigo. Uh, there's a, a couple of Cabernet Francs from Argentina. Grab it because it's yeah. really good. 
Matthias Richitelli is doing one that's oh, really good too. I love it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I've had it. It's very good. I agree. Yes. Yeah. There, I, I've found that it's an, it's an, it was an, a surprising discovery there. And I feel that people are, I, I, it's kind of an interesting moment that it, people are more open to experimentations. And I don't, do you think that's because there's a new crop of young winemakers coming up and, and putting on the table that it doesn't have to all be one way, one style. And they see that the market has been open a little bit and that there is more opportunity. Like what is the market now? I mean, when I say market, I'm, I'm, I'm referring more to the U.S. where most of our yeah. listeners are. I mean, what has been the reception since your mom had to go in and blind taste, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, with her against her own credit card? Yeah. wines. How have you seen the evolution of the consumer here? Because that's part of this story too, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the U.S. consumers are very generous people. You know, I, today I was on another call where somebody was asking about being a woman in wine. And I have to say, when I started in the 90s, you know, I came from medicine where it's like 50-50 women, men. I actually think there's been more graduates of medical school now that are women than men. So it was a very equal culture. And, you know, I was told like, oh, in wine, there's so many men and it's not a good environment for women. And I have to say, I had the most amazing experiences. Like people were so kind. They wanted to taste my wines. And yeah, sometimes they wouldn't buy them because they, they wouldn't be able to sell them. But they were so interested. And if we won a blind tasting, I mean, I tell you, Americans, if you convince them with a blind tasting, they were going to buy your wine over <laughs> the fanciest French wine they'd ever heard of. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, and that's what I loved so much about selling wine in the U.S. is that if I could convince people with quality, I was done. You know, they weren't they wouldn't fall for some, you know, snobby like, oh, you know, I've been making wine since the 12th century, you know, thing. <laughs> like, no, if, if they love the wine, they would buy it. And, um, you know, and so um, I think that today Americans are still it's the biggest market for Argentina outside of Argentina. You know, Argentina is number one. And then number two is the U.S. for mm -hmm. exports from Argentina. And it's not like that in Chile. You know, Chile no, is number No, no. There's Chile almost no wine consumption yeah. in domestically. Not only is there no wine consumption, but the number one market for Chile is China. I know. The US I know. It's one of the smaller markets. So, so Argentina has always had a love thing with the U.S. And U.S. drinkers are always happy to drink Argentine wines. Uh, and so that's wonderful. We have a lot of visitors come to Argentina from the U.S. Brazil is also a really strong market because it's very close. Right. And Brazilians love all the diversity in Argentina. I have to say, though, that it's still pretty hard for, for the small producers because, you know, often on the on the shelf in a wine store, they'll put, you know, Argentina and Chile has like, you know, a tiny little piece right. of, of the pie. So that's what I'm always fighting for it. I want a bigger part of the shelf. Uh, because once I get the wine to people, our wines are so good that people drink them and buy them and they they buy them again. But I don't think it's that easy. And what you said about all these young winemakers, um, I think it's a mix of, uh, you know, adventuresome people. Argentines are very creative. Uh, like Argentina, there's it's like one of the highest patent filing countries in the world. Like people mm. are always inventing things. Uh, people in wine are very creative already. Uh, there's also this wine drinking tradition in Argentina. So, you know, uh, wine is our national beverage. People drink wine over spirits, over beer, over everything, because it comes from the Italian and Spanish traditions we have. Um, so I think that when you drink wine, you're more likely to want to make an interesting wine. So there's a lot of people who start in finance or 
doctors or lawyers and they, they become winemakers at some point in their life. So I think there is a lot of creativity. I still think it's, it's not that easy for small producers to, to sell their wines. And I think with the internet and all the online sales, I think that's going to change. You know, the, some of these small productions will be more available. But it's, it's not easy to sell those wines outside of Argentina. But if you go to Argentina, you can visit wineries and taste them. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there, and I. That's hopefully what we're gonna be able to help some of these small producers get an outlet in the states too, because I think that that would also, um, you know, the wine story of the country, especially when it's emerging still, is so important that people start, you know, having the same ongoing connection, right? Like, because it's not just like you go to Argentina once and then, oh, that was nice. It's like, do you incorporate this into your life? Do you make empanadas? What is the love affair, right? Like you have, you you fall in love with this place and it's people and wine. If you have a copy of my book, Vino Argentino, I have some good recipes there. Oh, well, let's, let's, Uh let's share with listeners about this. So guys, in case you didn't notice, Laura's superhuman because she's not only a doctor and a winemaker and runs multiple businesses she also has time to write books and you have <laughs> you have a family <laughs> well, so and, and a neglected husband <laughs> but let's talk about you you've penned two books now one vino argentino is a very comprehensive guide not only to wine in argentina i would say it's like culture around wine and you touch a lot on the food and that so you know you share some of your recipes so what are your things that you love to drink when with wine in Argentina? Uh, well, I mean, empanadas, I do love, although they're not that easy to make. You have to buy, usually I wouldn't make the dough. I would buy the little crusts. Uh, and what I, one of my favorite things in Argentina are empanaderias, just like you have pizzerias. Oh, yeah. and, I, and I love pizza, like the thin crust yeah. or the really thick crust, one or the other. So amazing. So in Argentina, you have empanaderia where you have all the different flavors of Mm. of empanadas. So you have the corn and you have the cheese and onion, which is my personal favorite, or you have the ground meat or the chunks of meat or ham and cheese, Mm. salteña, salteña. So like the big fight is like, do you put raisins with your meat or not? And like in Mendoza, never raisins. I don't like raisins in my meat. But if you talk to somebody from another province, they like to put raisins. Uh, usually not very spicy, but I like spices. So I will often make my own empanadas. But every family's got their empanada tradition that they follow. I also have a really good torrontes, you know, which is the, the wine variety, the white variety, ice cream. So if, if you have an ice cream maker, the torrontes ice cream uh recipe is i think the best ice cream that exists in the world so wait this is like a sorbet or like an actual ice cream no it's an actual ice cream but you make it in a in a you know ice cream making machine and you can you can put uh, cream or not so you can make it more sorbet or not but it's it's really incredible and it's in my book it's one of my favorite uh recipes you know, I, I'm I'm interested to know you, what does terroir because we talk so much about terroir and craftsmanship in this podcast, but I'm always interested to know what it means for you. And it doesn't have to be like in a literal definition. Like, I mean, how how do you embrace it in your life? And how would someone that you know come is listening now and buys your your wines, any of them? What do you want them to take away from that? I've gotten into many debates about this, by the way. So terroir, you know, is basically often the traditional term is that it's the soil of a certain place that gives a certain flavor. And, you know, we just published a study that shows that terroir is reliable, that it exists, that, you know, the same Malbec selection grown in one soil climate tastes different than in another place. So what is terroir to me? 
terroir is definitely soil composition. Uh, it is also altitude because altitude defines climate. And, you know, if you have a certain soil in a hot climate or in a cool climate, the grapes are going to taste totally differently. So I, I think it's all the things that actually are local from one little piece of land that alter or or define, let's say, the taste of the wine made there. So I think it's soil. I think it's altitude. I think it's climate, which comes with altitude. Um, and I think it's also microbial uh, composition of the soil. We've been doing these great uh, studies of um, microbe composition, and we find that not only are the microbes different in different altitudes, but even within a same vineyard, we find different uh, microbes because the microbes help the roots to absorb water and nutrients. So I think that the future will show that microbial terroir is as important as soil. Uh, and also the yeast that are then, you know, used in fermentation. And if you're using native yeast fermentation, if you're not inoculating, those yeasts are coming from mm -hmm. that soil, you know, leaves, air environment. So that's part of the terroir. Uh, and then the big debate about terroir is the people. Right. So uh, I do believe that the traditions of a certain place should be part of the terroir, because I think that without that, you wouldn't have planted in a certain place without having tested multiple sites and found that one site. But I, I don't like the idea of winemaker style. I think that if you, you, you kind of have to choose one or the other. You know, you either choose the winemaker and the winemaker can change a lot of things about terroir. Uh, but so you're either a, a winemaker winery or you're a terroir winery. Uh, and there's some wines that are more winemaker wines. So maybe, you know, some $10 wines that are delicious, that are made with, you know, blends from really faraway places. That That's a winemaker wine. If you make a high altitude blend, choosing little parcels of different altitudes, always the same, that's more of a terroir blend. Mm -hmm. You know, so so I, I feel like you have to kind of choose one or the other. Um, but I think that the, the local traditions should be part of terroir. And this is the one where I've gone into the most fights about is coming is the plant selection so you know i've had people tell me no no plant selection is not part of it but i feel like listen we have these massage selections that they don't have in france so if you were to plant cot which produces 10 times more than argentine malbec because it's much higher yielding in the same soil same climate it's going to give you a totally different flavor so i think plant selection is part of the terroir i agree, um, I agree. but many but some people think not they think it's only soil and I think that's too narrow. Is there, you know, to talk about the future and what's on your horizons, because you obviously are amazing how much you, you, you've you done and achieved. What's on the horizon for you? Can you share anything, interesting projects coming up or new wines you're launching that you're excited about? What's in the future at the winery is um, more of this work of making Argentine wines that can stand with the best of the world. And the vision of the Catena Institute, which is to use science to preserve nature and culture. And this is important to me because when I started in wine, I felt like there was so much what I call blah, blah. Like people would just start, oh, in my vineyard, there's these roses planted here. And that's why it has this rose oh, yeah. smell and this and that and that. And people wanted to tell these romantic stories. But actually, if we're going to deal with climate change, we're going to have to have real data, real information. You know, in Argentina, we're privileged to have this high altitude, cool climate. So heat is not the big of a problem, but we, we have glaciers that are smaller. So how do we preserve water? This is the same problem in California, same problem in Australia. So 
Um, we're actually doing research. Uh, we have multiple PhD students at our winery, like one that's studying terroir, another one that, that's uh, studying water usage, another one that's starting um, the ecosystem and biodiversity. We have a, a lot of research on biodiversity. I really believe that it is our obligation to preserve biodiversity where we can. You know, you, you can't preserve biodiversity in the middle of New York or in Buenos Aires, or you can a little bit, Central mm. Park, you know, you've got uh, some big parks, but but that's small. I think that increasing yields and producing a ton of wine mm. should not be anybody's no. goal. If wine should be something that you drink in moderation, one glass, maybe two glasses, not every day of the week. Um, it's good for your health in moderation. So I feel like because we have that luxury with wine, we need to also work even more than in other things, in preserving the ecosystem, climate change, all these things. Uh, and when I say culture, you know, science to preserve nature and culture, also we're losing communities, farming communities to the cities where they don't have a better life, where they live in crammed up places. We need to increase the, the wealth of the farming communities and their livelihoods so that, um, you know, that's a life worth living. Thank you, Laura, and to all of you, dear friends, for joining us. You can certainly find Laura's family wines, Catena Zapata, and many of the wine retailers around the U.S. For those of you who love very fine wines or collectibles, definitely seek out the Adriana Vineyard and add it to your list for their Malbec or Chardonnay. You can also find Laura's personal wine project, called Luca Wines at some of the major wine retailers in the U.S., like Total Wine, Wine.com. And if you'd like to follow them on Instagram, the handle is at Luca, that's spelled L-U-C-A, Wines, all together. We will see you next week with another new episode and guest. Ciao. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, family member, coworker, or whoever could use some wonderlust in their life right now. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. They're tremendously helpful and we greatly appreciate it. For more inspiration and information on how to come travel with us in South America or bring South America into your home, visit our website at www.lizkaski.com and follow us on Instagram at LCCWE. See you guys next week. Hasta la próxima.